running water. I got a car overheating. I got an alarm that won't go off. I'm pressing one, I'm pressing two, nothing. What do I do? Help me, help me. Hey, you know they were supposed to do my scene today? Today? Yeah. You know, they told me that they wanted me to walk down the block carrying this bag of groceries, you yes. know? So I start to walk and I trip and the grocery bag goes flying yeah. and Woody, Woody starts laughing. <gasps> he was laughing? Oh, yeah. He was drinking something and started to come out of his nose. Oh. So then what? Well, I got a line in the movie. Yeah. 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 That's right. <laughs> you got a line in a Woody Allen movie? <laughs> You're in the movie. Is he in the scene? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's me and him. I might have a whole new career on my hands, huh? You mean a career? Is that with Mia Farrow there? Uh, I didn't see him. What's your line? Oh, well, uh, okay, I'm there with uh, Woody. You know, I'm at this bar, and uh, I'm, you know, it's Woody Allen. Did I mention that? Yeah, we yeah. got it, we got it. <laughs> And I'm sitting there with Woody, and uh, I say, I turn to him, and I go, uh, boy, these pretzels are making me thirsty. Is that how you're going to say it? No, no, I'm working on it. Do it like this. These pretzels are making me thirsty. No. These pretzels are making me thirsty. No, no, see, that's no good. See, you don't know how to act. <laughs> these pretzels. I'm making me thirsty! <laughs> oh, that was no good? I didn't say anything. All right, I'm gonna go uh, break up with Owen. What was wrong with that? I had a different interpretation. <laughs> Do you know anything about this pretzel guy? Maybe he's been in the bar a really long time and he's really depressed because he has no job and no woman and he's parking cars for a living. Owen! Shut up! Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hope. We are making our way through the Old Testament book of Isaiah throughout the course of this month. Today we get to Isaiah chapter 55, which begins with this question. Is anyone thirsty? Is anyone thirsty? George Costanza was thirsty. Yeah. So last weekend, uh, last Sunday afternoon, we had a, uh, a meeting, an information meeting for a trip to the Holy Land that a lot of Hopesters are going on this coming February. Eli, our discipleship minister, is going to be kind of leading that group and uh, adding some biblical insight as you tour around the Holy Land. Super excited for Eli. It'll be his first chance to go uh, visit Israel. If you've always thought about going to the Holy Land, I'd encourage you to talk to Eli about uh, going on that trip with him in February. As I was reading through Isaiah 55, it reminded me of my trip to uh, the Holy Land last March in a picture that I took. The very first day that we were in in Israel, we were in uh, Tel Aviv, and we went to the south side of the city to a, a village called Jaffa. And Jaffa is where Jonah flees. The Lord wants Jonah to go to Nineveh. Instead, Jonah runs the opposite direction to Jaffa. And so we're walking around the old, old streets of Jaffa, and our tour guide points out this water faucet. And you would see these water faucets just kind of scattered around different places and cities and villages uh, throughout the Holy Land. And our tour guide said to us, these faucets are a reminder of one of the really important cultural values in the Middle East, the value of hospitality. 
hospitality. What does water faucet have to do with hospitality? Later on in our visit, we were uh, making our way to Jerusalem. We were halfway between Jericho and Jerusalem, and we stopped at a place called Genesis Land. And Genesis Land was about helping us experience what it would have been like to be a part of Abraham and his family and his entourage as they made their way uh, you know, God called them to come to the land of Cana, and they work up and down the Fertile Crescent before arriving in the hills just south of, of Jerusalem. They were nomads. They lived in tents. They, they didn't have a, a home, and so they relied on the hospitality of the people who were already there. They didn't have access to wells. They had to use the water from the people who were already there. A big part of what hospitality in the Middle East centers around is giving water to thirsty travelers. Water in a desert culture is a matter of life and death. A water in a desert culture is a matter of salvation. And so when God begins this chapter with this question, is anyone thirsty, really what God is asking, does anyone need to be saved? Does anyone need the salvation that comes from the Lord? I got to tell you, I thank God in prayer on a pretty regular basis that I was born in this particular part of the world and in this particular time in history. I would not have made a good nomad. I am not built for the desert. I've got a band-aid because I have a hangnail. I couldn't survive. I couldn't survive in the desert. But a lot of people love to just kind of test their survival kind of instincts and, and skills. There's a book called The Sahara Unveiled, and the author talks about uh, some people who are traveling through the Sahara Desert. One of the stories uh, they tell in the book is about uh, two people from North Africa making their way through the Sahara. One is named Lag Lag. Uh, the, the other guy is just his companion. And they're going through the, um, the desert when their truck breaks down. And here's what the author writes about it. They nearly died of thirst during the three weeks they waited before being rescued. As their bodies dehydrated, they became willing to drink anything in hopes of quenching their terrible thirst. The sun forced them into the shade under the truck uh, where they dug a shallow trench. Day after day, they lay there. They had food, but they did not eat, fearing it would magnify their thirst. Dehydration, not starvation, kills wanderers in the desert. And thirst is the most terrible of all human suffering. Thirst is the most terrible of all human sufferings. When physiologists are kind of describing stages of thirst, they use Greek-based words like these. Here's dipsogenic. Uh, dipsogenic means thirst-provoking. The desert is a dipsogenic place. Lag-lag and his companion, as they're waiting to be rescued in the desert, they progress through these stages of thirst. Eudipsia, which is ordinary thirst, and then hyperdipsia, temporary intense thirst, and finally polydipsia. Sustained, excessive thirst. Uh, polydipsia is the kind of thirst that makes you willing to drink anything because you become convinced it's the only thing that will help you live. And so for Lag Lag and his uh, companion, they ended up drinking the water from the radiator of their truck. In order, rusty water, water filled with who knows what kind of chemicals, water that was probably a little bit toxic actually, not good for them, but they were convinced this is what would keep them alive. 
I first heard about polydipsia when my wife was pregnant with our firstborn, Dalton. Uh, Dalton turned 20 this last week. That means it was 21 Augusts ago that my wife Wendy and I packed up a U-Haul and we moved from Des Moines to Portland, Oregon so I could uh, attend seminary out there. And our job, the first year that I was in seminary, our job, we were like house parents at a group home. Uh, The group home was a dual diagnosis facility. And that means in order to be a resident of that home, you had to have both mental illness and drug and alcohol addictions. And so Wendy and I had been married for 10 months when we decided (laughs) to move all the way across the country and live in that group home. Maybe not the wisest decision we've ever made, but free room and board, so we made it work. Uh, Over the course of that year, Wendy uh, was pregnant with Dalton, and we decided probably not the best place to raise our firstborn, and so got a new job, we moved, that sort of thing. But we stayed there through the seventh month of Wendy's pregnancy. And as her pregnancy progressed uh, in that sixth and seventh month period of time, one of the residents of that group home began to pay really close attention to Wendy. And it's sad and it's absolutely tragic, but what this woman started to do, she would drink glass after glass after glass of water and then hold her bladder and then drink more water and more water and more water and her stomach would extend and she would walk around the house holding her stomach pretending like she was pregnant. Polydipsia uh, for this woman was a way of dealing with the pain and the hurt. Because of her addiction and her mental illness, she had lost custody of her children. And this polydipsia was a way of trying to deal with that hurt and that pain. And if she would have kept doing it, it would have had horrible health consequences on her body. Sustained excessive thirst, polydipsia. I wonder what's making you thirsty these days. And I wonder what you are doing to try to quench your thirst. So many of us in this part of the world, we suffer from forms of spiritual polydipsia. We're drinking and downing one thing after another, hoping that somehow it's going to lead us to the life that we want, but a lot of what we are drinking is actually unhealthy and dangerous for us. Is anyone thirsty, God asks? Anyone in need of rescue? Anyone in need of salvation? Anyone looking for more life than what you're experiencing? Of course, the answer to that is yes, we all are to some degree or another. Uh, Leslie Nope in this sitcom, Parks and Recreation, my wife and I loved this when it was originally on, and now we're watching it with our uh, teenage sons, and it's just cracking us up. And I was, I was trying to explain to my wife where I was wanting to go with this message, and she said, oh, that reminds me of, of that one uh, episode of Parks and Rec. So this is Leslie Nope, who is very concerned in this episode that perhaps the fine citizens of Pawnee, Indiana are suffering from excessive thirst because she looks at the excessive of size of the drinks that they have. Take a look. Miss Pinewood, recently many of the local restaurants have changed their small size option to a whopping 64 ounces. That's correct. And it's great for the consumer. More bang for the buck. Are we putting bargains on trial here? How could any sane person call that small? Well, if the customer truly wants a smaller size, there is an option. Oh, do you mean... The little swallow? Does anybody buy that? Some girls buy them for their dollhouses, but they're not very popular. I mean, for only a nickel more, you get 64 ounces. Well, uh, Ponchburger just recently came out with a new 128 ounce option. Most people call it a gallon, but they call it the regular. Then there is a horrifying 512 ounce version 
that they call child size. How is this a child size soda? Well, it's roughly the size of a two-year-old child if the child were liquefied. It's a real bargain at $159. I'm sorry, Miss Pinewood, but why would anybody need this much soda? It's not my place to speak for the consumer, but everyone should buy it. Uh. In 1955, when McDonald's opened, the largest drink you could order was seven ounces. Seven ounces. A lot has changed over the course of the last 60 plus years. A couple of years ago, we had a, a visitor staying with us for about a week. His name was Moussan, and Moussan was born and raised in Morocco and, and moved to Paris in his early 20s. He, he was staying with us for about a week, and it was summertime. And one of the things I love about summer, all the uh, convenience stores are like only a dollar for however big you want, you know? And so we're, we're going to Quick Trip or Come and Go or Casey's or wherever it was, and, and we got Moussan like a 32-ounce drink, and he just laughed and laughed and laughed. There's no way I'm going to be able to drink this. He just couldn't believe how big the cups were in, in America. Most fast food joints these days, you can get a 42-ouncer. At 7-Eleven, which we don't have around here, but most uh, other places around uh, the United States, you go to 7-Eleven, you get a big gulp, and they also have a double big gulp, and apparently they have something called a team big gulp, which is that gallon size, 128 ounces. I saw somebody say, what are they going to come up with next, a bucket gulp? Maybe a barrel gulp, or how about a tanker gulp, or maybe even a, a tower gulp? How about that? Yeah, okay, so sometimes when you're writing sermons, you just put stuff in that you like. Nobody all weekend long <laughs> liked that at all. But I think that's hilarious. Are you kidding me? Tower gulp? Jesus says, Jesus says, I'm the living water. I'm the living water. I'm the water of life. I'm like a wellspring in the desert. Come to me, Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty... And, and Jesus says about this living water that he offers, if you drink it, you will never be thirsty again. I've come that you may have life, have it to the full life that overflows. Offer this living water that Jesus has, you drink it and it fills you up and then flowing out of you will be rivers of living water. Where do you get that kind of water? How, how do you quench this thirst that we all have? How do you discover the life that God is talking about when God tells us to come to him? This is what Isaiah 55 is really all about. It's how do you find the salvation and the life that God has for us? So I'm about to give us uh, three things that we can do to quench our spiritual thirst. The first one comes from Isaiah 55 verse 6. It's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Three things to do to quench your spiritual thirst. Number one is to seek the Lord. But before we go too far into that, let's back up to last week. Because last week, one of the cautions we had that in this part of the world, we are doers, which is really great in a lot of ways. But when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to a life of faith, being doers often gets us off the track. That God has a track for us, a path for our lives, and it's the path of grace. And so many times, we just don't know how to walk that path. Instead, we go the path of trying to do it, trying to earn it ourselves. And so maybe some of you are thinking, if you're going to give us three things to do to quench our spiritual thirst, doesn't that contradict what we talked about last week? So let me see if I can explain it in a way that I hope will be helpful uh, to you. This is, this is what we believe to be true about the relationship between humanity and God. That God is perfect. God is holy. If we go to the next slide, you'll kind of see an image of this. God, God is holy, which means he is set apart 
from humanity which is not perfect, a humanity which is sinful. There's a gap, there's a separation. What bridges the gap? Well, what Scripture tells us, it's grace that bridges that gap. Grace that unites us in a life-giving relationship with God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. We're saved by grace through faith. It's nothing we do. This is a gift from God. Then Paul is writing to the church in uh, the book of Philippians, trying to help us understand what does it mean to uh, be the church. And let's read together what Paul says. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Again, it's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Jesus in John 6 says, the only thing you have to do is believe. And now here's Paul saying, now you got to work hard. You got to work hard. So which is it? Are, Are they contradicting? Let's look a little closer. Yes, Paul says work hard, but he does not say work hard to earn your salvation. He says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. In other words, salvation's been taken care of. God has done this for you. All you have to do is believe. Now, because you are saved, you have the opportunity, you can live a whole new kind of life, a changed kind of life. And sometimes this is where we get messed up. Oh yeah, to live a changed kind of life, it's all about me and what I do and my willpower and my my own kind of self-discipline. Paul says, no, God is working in you. Who has the power to change you? Who has the power to mature you? Who has the power to help you grow as a disciple? It's the power of God giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. At Hope, we have something we call the Hope Circle. It's one of the ways we talk about discipleship. Four phases to the Hope Circle, uh, seeker, believer, follower, and servant leader. It, It starts in the seeker phase. And maybe that's some of you. Maybe you're here and you're not exactly sure what you believe about Jesus, about God, about faith, about church, about Christianity. That's great. We built this place to be a safe place for people to come and ask big questions that they have about life and faith and and everything that's associated with that. And so there's the seeker starting kind of place, and then you move around the hope circle from seeker to believer, then follower and servant leader. And you can find this on the Hope website. If you just go to the search bar and type in Hope Circle, it'll, it'll bring all this up and a, and a lot more information about it as well. But just really briefly, each of these phases has a description, a real brief description. And each of the descriptions begins with the same phrase. God is at work. God is at work, comes right from Philippians 2. For the seeker, God is at work moving within us to say yes to God. Uh, For the believer, God is at work uh, revealing our true self, so helping us understand what's my God-given identity. And then what's my calling? For a follower, God is at work helping us move into that calling that God has on our life. What are the unique ways that God has gifted us and how does God want us to use that for the sake of God's work in the world? Finally, servant leader, God is working through me to empower others, to lift up others and to share God's story with the world around us. It's a circle, but we often say, think of it more in three-dimensional terms, uh, like maybe a spiral that spirals downward. And here's why I would say it spirals downward. It's a circle, which means it never stops. There's always a next step for growth. But think about as we mature, one of the things God says happens is uh, the Spirit produces fruit in us, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You go around the hope circle, you get to servant leader. That doesn't mean all of a sudden you have all of the fruit of the Spirit you need. Of course, you need more. And so you keep going. But 
you're, you're moving downward at the same time. Because remember what Jesus says, whoever wants to be great must become the servant of all, uh, must lower themselves, must become least of all. There's this downward movement to this. Hospitality is a big part of this. In uh, Matthew 25, Jesus says, here's what my disciples do. They welcome the stranger. They give drink to those who are thirsty and food to those who are hungry and clothe to those who are uh, naked. They visit the prisoner. They take care of people who are sick. It's a way of serving in humility. And uh, Proverbs, the wisdom of Proverbs 11.25 says, this is actually one of the ways in which we quench our spiritual thirst. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. And so we never end, and it's this circle, and it's going lower and lower and lower as we grow in humility. Another way of thinking about the hope circle would be there's the person that I am today, and then God is at work helping me become the person God wants me to be. So me uh, version 2.0 or me version 102.0 because it's just constant growth and change for followers of Jesus. But there's a, a, a gap, a separation between who I am today and who I hope to become next year or five years or 10 years from now. And what bridges the gap? Again, the answer is grace. I think sometimes we, we keep grace too small. And we say grace is only the power of God to forgive my sins. Of course it is the power of God that does that. It's the power of God to forgive my sins and unite me in this life-giving relationship. Grace is also the power of God to change me. The power of God to mature me and, and to transform me and to help me grow. Work hard to show the results of your salvation because God is at work in you. It's not like, am I going the path of grace or am I going the path of doing and earning? There's an overlap here. And so there are things that we do that God has just kind of set up. Sometimes we call them spiritual disciplines. These are things that we do because as we do them, Grace is at work in us. God's power is at work in us. So whether it's reading the Bible or gathering together for worship or a prayer or being in a group, a Christian community or serving, all of these things we do, it activates our faith because grace, God's power, is at work as we do these kinds of things. I, I like the way Dallas Willard makes, I think, an important distinction. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning." Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So my question for you is, what effort are you going to put into seeking after God this fall? Next weekend is Labor Day weekend, and then fall is really kind of unofficially kicking off, right? And, and our schedules are kind of set, and there's this new rhythm to life, and school's back in session, and uh, fall ministries kind of kick off in the life of the church. What effort are you going to put into seeking after the Lord this fall? We have all kinds of options for you at this church. There are classes you can take. There are ministries where you can serve and, and volunteer. There are groups that you can uh, be a part of. Our staff would love to talk to you about this. It's all in the website. You can just go through the website and see what, what fits for you. Or you can get the fall catalog over at the Connect, Grow, Serve booth right across from uh, Cafe Hope. Staff would love to talk to you. But even more importantly, God would love to talk to you about this. Step one, if we're wanting to uh, quench our spiritual thirst, is to seek the Lord. Step two is to listen to the Lord. It comes from Isaiah 55, verse 3. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, and you will find life. Listen, and you will find life. So those of you who are parents, if, if your children are sick, 
have some kind of a physical hurt, physical pain, physical ailment, what do you do for your kids? Maybe you take them to the doctor, you get some medicine for them, hopefully you pray for them. I've never really understood uh, religious groups who say the only thing we're going to do if there's some kind of a physical hurt or pain, the only thing we're going to do is pray for them. And don't get me wrong, I think prayer is powerful. Uh, I know that prayer works. I know that God heals people through prayer. It's happened in my life, in the life of people in our family, and a lot of people in the life of this church. God has answered prayers and brought about physical healing. But we also believe one of the primary ways God heals today is through modern medicine. Doctors. And so I think a lot of us in, in a room like this, we might roll our eyes and we might shake our heads at, at religious people who say, all I'm going to do is pray. No doctors, no medicine, I'm just going to pray. I also think a lot of us, those same people who would roll our eyes and shake our heads at people who wouldn't get professional help for a physical ailment when it comes to, I don't know, uh, emotional pain, relational hurts, psychological hurts, we're kind of in that same boat where we say, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to go see a doctor about that. I'm not going to go to a counselor about that. I'll pray, I'll show up for worship more, and, and, and maybe God will honor that by bringing about some healing in my life, but I'm not going to see a professional. And I kind of understand that. That's where I've lived most of my life, actually. But i got to tell you, in the last several years, one of the ways that God has been at work in my life, giving me the power to do what pleases God, has been through the therapeutic process and going and seeing a counselor on a regular basis. Remember what Isaiah is doing? Isaiah is pointing us to the Messiah. And Isaiah says when the Messiah comes, when Jesus comes, there are certain names that he's going to have. Emmanuel, which means God is with us, Isaiah says. Uh, the uh, Messiah is also going to be called Mighty God, Prince of Peace. One of the names Isaiah says we're going to give to Jesus the Messiah is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Last week we talked about this idea, God's love is too great for us to understand fully. At the same time, we can always grow in our uh, experience and our understanding of God's love so that we experience it more tomorrow than we do today. And for me, that's what the counseling process has been about. It's been a tool that God has used, not in place of spiritual disciplines, not instead of like stop reading the Bible and going to worship and just go to counseling. No. But alongside of these kinds of things, God has used the counseling process to open doors to greater and greater awareness and experience of God's love for me and for this world. This is what Isaiah is talking about in chapter 55. Verse 3 goes on. The full verse says, Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you and I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. One of the ways grace is at work in us, helping us become the people God wants us to be, grace empowers us to experience more and to understand God's love more all the time. Do you know people who've been coming to church forever and ever and ever, uh, maybe for decades, and nothing has changed? They're the same people today as they were when they first started coming to church. Maybe they're worse angrier, more bitter, more judgmental. Like coming to church and, and being a part of the body of Christ, it's not actually changing them. They're not receiving this power to live a new life, a changed life. One of the things I've found myself doing as pastor, for whatever reason, a lot of people 
you know, not even inside the church, sometimes outside the church, a lot of people are willing to just share problems with you because you're a pastor. And one of the things I found myself saying recently is like, yeah, wow, that's hard stuff. What does your counselor say about that? What does your counselor think about that? Most of the time, I know they're not seeing a counselor, so it's a real passive-aggressive move on my part, but I don't <laughs> particularly care. Like, I'm happy to talk to people, and I'm happy to try to empathize and say, yes, that's terrible. Of course that hurts, and let's pray about that, and let's ask God to move. And there are other resources available. And if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, we have a name for that. Insanity. Listen, one of the names of Jesus in the New Testament is Great Physician. Great physician. I'm guessing none of us in this room would say, Jesus is my great physician, so I don't need to go to a doctor. One of the names of Jesus is Wonderful Counselor. And a lot of us say, I'm just going to let Jesus be my counselor. I'm not going to go to an earthly counselor. Why? Why? Why not take advantage of all the resources? Why not seek the Lord with everything available to you? Why not listen to the Lord through the wisdom and counsel of people that God has gifted to be able to speak things to you that you might not hear in any other way, that, that you might not see in any other way? How do you quench your spiritual thirst? According to Isaiah, you seek the Lord, you listen to the Lord, and then finally, you trust the Lord. Here's verse 8. It's on the screen. Read it with me. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. This is actually one of our theme verses for the giving campaign we had uh, last year. Building to a hope beyond. And part of what we're hoping to do is expand our facility uh, to create more room, a better room, better space for youth and family ministry in particular. We had more kids come to Vacation Bible School this year at Hope Ankeny than we've ever had. Uh, Ignition, our ministry to high school students, has more uh, students registered than it ever has had before. Same with, with Power Life, our middle school ministry. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the communities that make up Hope Ankeny, they're not actually shrinking. They're just getting more and more people all the time. So we want to do everything we can to be prepared to help young people in particular seek the Lord, listen to the Lord, and trust the Lord from a very early age. So a quick update on this. Uh, last fall, this congregation pledged uh, one-time gifts and, and three-year pledges. So over the course of three years, this congregation pledged $3.1 million, which is a lot of money. Uh, we're nine months into that three years, and already the congregation has given $1.3 million. So I just want to thank you for that. Praise God for your uh, generosity. Continue to do that. Those of you who are uh, giving toward that, and if you have questions about uh, anything along with that campaign, I'd be happy to talk to you about that at any point. Our, our goal is to do this debt-free. It's going to be about a $5 million project, and so we're, we're making progress. We're getting closer and uh, closer all the time. God says almost the exact same thing in verse 9 of Isaiah 55 that he says in verse 8 of 55. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Uh, this is Jim Carrey, the comedian and the actor doing a, a photo shoot for an article that recently appeared in The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, Jim Carrey, uh, for most of his life, he thought, here's the goal of life, this is what life is all about to become rich, successful, a celebrity. And so he was a real hard worker in Hollywood for several years. 
uh, did blockbuster hits like Ace Ventura, you know, films. These are films we're talking about. Dumb and Dumber, Bruce Almighty. Uh, he was the first guy to get $20 million per film, and so he achieved everything that he was hoping to achieve, and he still had significant thirst. His achievements did not satisfy. Hollywood never stopped being willing to write him huge checks, but he kind of got tired of cashing those huge checks and didn't have a breakdown or anything like that, but just slowly over the years, he started to work less and less all the time. Or, or maybe a more accurate way to put it would be the work that Jim Carrey has been doing the last decade or so has been interior work, really paying attention to the condition of his heart and his soul. And a lot of the ways that he's uh, been uh, getting in touch with his insides and uh, his pain and things in his life that are in need of uh, uh, healing because they've been broken, a lot of it happens through his artistic expressions. As a comedian and an actor, you know, he's an artist, but he's also an artist in terms of drawing, sketching, painting, uh, sculpture. He's done a lot of that work. He's uh, talked with people, read a lot of books, a lot of prayer and, and meditation. For the last decade, he has been seeking the Lord. He's been listening to the Lord, and he's gotten to a place where he's come to trust the Lord. So I want you to watch this video. Part of it's going to be his artwork and how that has been helpful. Um, and then it's going to end with Jim Carrey at a place called Homeboy Industries. Homeboy Industries, a Christ-centered rehabilitation center for former gang members and drug addicts. It's a, an organization that Jim Carrey supports in all kinds of ways. As you watch this, be thinking about the transformation, the power of God to transform someone's heart and life and mind and soul. If God can do it for Jim Carrey, maybe God can do it for you. Take a look. I believe every single thing that you see and hear is talking to you. You know, the bottom line with all of this, whether it's performance or it's art or it's sculpture, is love. We want to show ourselves and have that be accepted. I love being alive, and the art is the evidence of that. You can tell what I love by the color of the paintings. You can tell my inner life by the darkness in some of them. and. You can tell what I want from the brightness in some of them. I think what makes someone an artist is they make models of their inner life. They make something physically come into being that is inspired by their emotions or their needs or what they feel the audience needs. I don't know what painting teaches me. I, I know that it just frees me. Free from the future, free from the past, free from regret free from worry. The energy that surrounds Jesus is electric. I don't know if Jesus is real. I don't know if he lived. I don't know what he means, but the paintings of Jesus are really my desire to convey Christ consciousness. I wanted you to have the feeling when you looked in his eyes that he was accepting of who you are. I wanted him to be able to stare at you and heal you from the painting. You can find every race in the face of Jesus. And I think that's how every race imagines Jesus. They imagine him as their own. Um, yeah. 
And I, I want to speak to uh, the fact that I believe uh, that this room is filled with God. And, uh, and that you are heroes to me. And I admire you. Because when you step through these doors, and you decide to be a part of this family, you've made a decision to transcend and to leave darkness behind. And it takes a champion to make that decision. And uh, I really want to speak to the fact that I've had some challenges in the last couple of years myself. Uh, and uh, ultimately, I believe that suffering leads to salvation. And in fact, it's the only way that uh, we have to somehow accept and not deny, but feel our suffering and feel our losses. And, uh, and then we make one of two decisions. We either decide to go through the gate of resentment, which leads to vengeance, which leads to self-harm, which leads to harm to others, or we go through the gate of forgiveness which leads to grace. And uh, your being here is an indication that you've made that decision already. You've made the decision to walk through the gate of forgiveness to grace, just as Christ did on the cross. He suffered terribly, and he was broken by it to the point of doubt and a feeling of absolute abandonment, which all of you felt. And uh, then there was a decision to be made. And the decision was to look upon the people who were causing that suffering, or the situation that was causing that suffering, with compassion and with forgiveness. And that's what opens the gates of heaven for all of us. So I wish that for all of you. I wish that for myself. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. <clears throat> so, Lord, we come to you, and um, we come to you filled with gratitude because life for us is really pretty good. And we thank you for all the many blessings in, in our life. But we also come to you because uh, nothing's perfect. Nothing's perfect in our own lives and in our own families and in our own jobs. And so we come to you uh, with hurts and pain and brokenness uh, that we don't know what to do with. And I pray that you would help us uh, come to you and to receive from you the life that you have to offer, the healing and the hope that you have to offer. I pray that you would empower us with your spirit and, and that you would change us and we would absolutely understand it's not by our might, it's not by our strength, but it's by your spirit, uh, that transformation is possible, that salvation is possible. So uh, we ask, Lord, for those things in our life that seem impossible. We ask for a breakthrough by the power of your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.